Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Mark. Sure, am I, am I on here? Okay. All right. Well, good morning, Crossroads. It's a, a joy to be, be with you and uh, to uh, meet you at the table. And today, it's a special privilege to be able to hear from someone who was at the first gathering of the table, who was there reclining against Jesus's chest that night that the Lord instituted the the first supper, the first breaking of bread. In fact, this person, this man, ended up outliving all the other apostles. If you haven't picked up on it yet, this is the Apostle John, or as he refers to himself, the beloved disciple. That's who we get to hear from today and the inspiration of the Spirit through his writing. So if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn to the Gospel according to John. And as Pastor Mark mentioned, we're taking maybe a, a quick break from our regular sermon series, though not quite removed completely. Maybe we can categorize this message as adjacent to or complementary to. In our scripture reading each week, again, we've had the privilege of reading through this, this gospel that John penned. And this, this gospel is so rich because John, he writes, so our, our author writes about 20-ish or so years after the synoptic gospel writers penned their messages. And that means that he's had a wealth of years in, in ministry and life to reflect on the teachings of Jesus and his time with him. What a, what a privilege it is to, to drink from this deep theological and Christological reflection of his. So let me remind you of the purpose for why John is writing here this, this gospel very kind of him. He tells us in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. This is his central aim, his, his thesis, that not only may we believe, but that in our believing, we would have eternal life, abundant life in Christ. And I believe we'll, we'll see this accomplished in our passage today. We'll be looking at John chapter 4 and the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. But before we dive in, since we haven't been completely in the, in the book of John, preaching through it, let's place this story in context. So this story is found in a, in a larger section that we observe in the Gospel of John, starting with chapter 2, verse 1, going through chapter 4, the end of chapter 4, verse 54. We notice this is 
kind of a main unit that John has compiled here. And in this section, there's five stories that show the greatness, the newness, the superiority, the abundance of the new messianic age that Christ, that Jesus has come to inaugurate here in his ministry. So in the beginning of chapter 2, we have the first sign. The sign is, as John calls them. And this starts off in Cana of Galilee, the region of Cana. And he'll bookend this section with Jesus being in this region. And here in, in the first part of chapter 2, Jesus turns water to wine at a wedding banquet. And this really sets the table for now the rest of this section, signifying this newness, this abundance, overflowing superiority of the new messianic age. Then at the end of chapter 2, we have the story of Jesus clearing or cleansing the temple, signifying that Jesus is the new temple. Then in John chapter 3, we have the, the well-known conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, which Jesus, we see him bringing, offering new birth. Then now today we'll be in chapter 4, at the beginning of chapter 4, with this fourth story, with Jesus at a well, with the woman of Samaria. And what I believe we'll see today is that Jesus is bringing a new universal outreach of the gospel through this story. And then to close this section, John records one last sign going back to this region of, of, of Cana where the wedding feast was. And he records one last sign here for this section where uh, Jesus heals a nobleman's son, showing that Jesus brings new life and that he is superior and more powerful than even death itself. So my argument today, and what I think John, our, our author, is wanting us to see, is that it is in this story, this story of Jesus and, and the woman at the well, it's in this story that Jesus reveals one of the most important transitions in redemptive history. I hope that we see through this passage that it doesn't matter to God what your race is. It doesn't matter your religious background. It doesn't matter your social economic status, your gender, your political stance, anything of that nature. It doesn't matter even the sins that we have committed. But we can enter now into a relationship with God. So I hope we see that this conversation has cataclysmic impacts for you and me today. It's a lofty goal, but by the power of the Spirit, I know, uh, Lord willing, we will accomplish this. Before we read our passage, let me just make one final note, build off what Pastor Mark mentioned of how this story, uh, this passage today, ties in with our sermon series. 
biblical complementarity and God's grand design. We've seen numerous times already the role, the vital role, if I might add, of women in God's redemptive plan. In the last two weeks, specifically, we've seen their unique role, first in Jesus's ministry, and then their active participation in church life and their witness to this good news of the gospel. We'll see that here again today. Though not necessarily the main point of our author, we do see this example up close. That women are absolutely included in Christ's redemptive mission. So don't overlook the fact that Jesus chose to reveal this momentous, redemptive, historical transition to the most unlikely of audiences at that time. Breaking down all social norms, economic, racial, gender infrastructures, as he begins inaugurating this new universal outreach that we'll see today. So with that introduction, let's dive into our passage today. I'll read chapter 4, verse 1 through 26, so you can follow along. The words will be on the screen behind me, but also I'd encourage you to have your Bibles open today as we'll stick closely as we always do to the text. John chapter 4. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get the living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, 
And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Church, this is the word of the Lord. I see three movements of our author in our passage today. The first is the arrangement of the divine appointment itself. John is setting up the narrative here for us. And then the divine appointment. Jesus engaging with the woman. Third and final is the divine appointments revelation. What will be revealed. A divine appointment is arranged. John starts his narration with Jesus in Judea. And due to the rising influence of his ministry and the attention it's receiving from the Pharisees and and others, he decides to head to Galilee. And if we look at verse 4, John highlights a divine necessity into the purpose of the story that he's setting up. Verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. So a little bit of background for us. There was a lot of animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. And this is why John then inserts his parenthetical insert in in verse 9, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Maybe helpful to note that this animosity seems to stem from religious differences. We can learn this from history, but we can also see this from the dialogue. We see that the Samaritan woman makes reference to where is the rightful place to worship. The Samaritans took maybe a little bit more of a conservative approach to Judaism. Maybe we could see their their beliefs here as as a sect of Judaism. They only believed in the first five books of our Old Testament. They only believed in the the Pentateuch or, or the law proper, as maybe they would refer to it. They saw themselves as purists who held to the most true revelation of of who God was. So they, they disregarded the messages of the, of the prophets, the later prophets who came to Israel, and the prophetic books, the wisdom, the poetry that we find in, in our Old Testament and the Jews would adhere to. And, of course, we can get caught up in all this historical debate on what they believed and why they believed it and all this. But John by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and some artistic mastery, maybe, in his writing highlights the differences between Jews and Samaritans in this conversation 
So we just need to stick close to the text. However, some implied information, John assumes his readers, his hearers, would be familiar with some basic geography. So for those of us who are maybe a little less familiar with the geographical layout, yes. Yes, in order for Jesus to get to Galilee from where he was, he did have to pass through Samaria in the shortest amount of steps. This would have been a route he would have to take. However, this was not the most common route. It's actually much more common for Jews to travel around Samaria. So Samaria is smack dab in the middle of Galilee and Judea. It was very common. It's a well-traveled path and probably expected that most Jews would travel around Samaria and not pass through. And rightfully so, because there was many violent outbreaks when Jews would pass through Samaria. So John's comment here that Jesus had to pass through Samaria, I believe encompasses so much more than just geographical understanding or locating us in this story. He's telling us Jesus never does anything by accident. If we miss everything else today, don't miss this. Jesus doesn't do things out of happenstance. He's not a good, he's not just a good guesser. He doesn't accidentally happen to do things. I don't know how else I can say it. It's, it's by his providential hand that you and I are here today. And praise God for that. But don't just take my word for it. Just flip over one page or look over at the next chapter. Because John argues for this fact by recording Jesus' own words in chapter 5, verse 19. Where Jesus says, The Son of Man himself can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. So the route he takes must be an ordained travel log from his father. Yet another instance where we see Jesus exhibiting complete obedience to his father. Not my will, father, but yours. Just as John will record even later during the Bread of Life discourse in chapter 6, verse 38... When Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus is on an assignment. This conversation is being divinely set up. John is hinting at the importance. This conversation is going to be nothing short of miraculous. And ultimately, it's going to forever reveal a change in the landscape Christianity, and it will fulfill your and my deepest need. So let's keep going here in, in verse 5. So he came to the city of Samaria called Sychar near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. John has now set the story for us. He's given us the time, the context, the place. He's even connected this with, with the Old Testament for us, which are all keys that we will see in, in how we understand this dialogue that will follow. 
And the picture he's painting of Jesus here and expounded then in verse 7 as well that Jesus is the perfect God-man. He's omniscient, knowing all things, in complete step, in sync, in complete unison with the Father. And yet, he is human. He gets tired. He gets hungry. He gets thirsty. Just like you and I. And so he sits down at this well. Sixth hour, it's it's about noon, midday, probably the hottest part of the day. When usually people would not be out and about. They'd be taking a light lunch or maybe taking a nap. And yet it is at this moment that God has orchestrated a divine appointment. If I might add, it's easy for us to miss opportunities because in our human minds, we don't think the timing is good. We don't think the circumstances are just right. We don't really know what to say. Or we're just flat out distracted looking at our phones. But this is not so for Jesus. No, being in complete unison with the Father, He is in the perfect place at the perfect time with the perfect message. And even in the midst of distraction, being tired, hungry, thirsty, He is unlike us in that he does not miss the opportunity that is in front of him. As we've already noted in this service, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 4, verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Jesus is the perfect God-man. We see that here in the beginning section that John is describing for us. And Jesus is in perfect sync with the Father who is intentionally setting up this divine appointment. And so what is going to follow now is a conversation. And this is going to be the longest conversation recorded in the Gospels that Jesus has with one other person. And it happens with a woman. Not just any woman, But a non-Jewish, sinful, insignificant, unnamed, uneducated, unpopular, social outcast. If we remember the context that this story is in, we see that, that this conversation right here that we're looking at today comes right on the heels of the conversation Jesus just had with a very educated, very popular, very powerful self-righteous, Jewish, religious teacher and man named Nicodemus. See, John wants us to see this. He wants us to see the contrast. Nicodemus came in the cover of night and left still in the dark. This woman encounters Jesus during the day and she leaves in the light, capital L. And both fundamentally have the same need. They both need spiritual rebirth. They both need to drink of this living water. H.B. Charles, a well-known preacher, says this about the relationship between these two conversations that John records Jesus having. In chapter 3, he says, we see no one is beyond the need 
of grace. And in chapter 4, we see no one is beyond the reach of grace. Nicodemus, a man who should have known, who should have understood, fails to grasp, grasp the message at that time of the conversation. And this woman here, who's the most unlikely of candidate to receive this divine encounter, this divine message, ends up putting her faith in Jesus and witnessing to her entire town. This is now the second movement of our passage that we move into, the actual divine dialogue. We just saw in in verse 6 that it's about noon, and this woman's coming to draw water. This is not the time of day that women would have come to draw water. Usually they would have come early in the morning, in the cool of the day, and they would have come together. For women who spent most of their time in the home, mostly in isolation, this would have been a chance to socialize. And all the extroverts said amen. John here is suggesting that this woman is somewhat of an outcast. Rejected by society. And again, the most unlikely recipient of this encounter. And so now in verse 7 John records, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Notice it is Jesus who is reaching out, who is initiating the conversation and extending the invitation for her response. Jewish men were very much discouraged from talking or having any dealings with Samaritan women, especially in private. So don't hear this this request or give me a drink from from Jesus as him asserting his dominance over her. It's quite the contrary. Jesus is disregarding the taboos of the day, breaking down the cultural norms to engage with this woman. So let us pause here and marvel at Jesus. The one who's in the business of saving souls. His mission is to bring grace to the sinner, to save the lost. And today he's still reaching out his hand to save sinners. And so we should be so thankful because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And by his grace, his grace alone, he extends this free gift of eternal life. Church, are we following the example of Christ? Are we reaching out to those who are different from us or to those who ashamedly so we might think don't even deserve to know Christ? So the woman responds, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? And then look, look at this next response by Jesus. Look how quickly he moves the conversation to spiritual matters. In in verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. He brings grace to sinners, and no one is out of reach. 
of the grace of God. He will break down every cultural, social, political, religious, gender, whatever you want. He'll break down any barrier to bring this living water to those who are seeking. John says in, in John seven thirty seven, he records this of Jesus. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. That's what Jesus is offering. If anyone is thirsty, there's no other requirement than that the person be seeking Christ, that they be thirsty for what he has to offer. Jesus offers this woman living water, flowing water, moving water, cool water, much different than this stagnant, probably warm well water. And her response? Really? Do you think I don't know where all the sources of water are in this town. After all, it is my job to gather the water. You don't even have anything to draw with. Do you think you're greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well? And ironically, yes. <laughs> yes, he is. And so Jesus continues saying to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. This water is not going to quench your thirst. You'll return for more. It's not going to satisfy. The only thing that will satisfy is the living water that I have to offer you today. Just like this woman, our world is constantly searching for the one thing that is going to satisfy. The one thing that's going to satisfy all of our cravings, all of our desires, all of our lusts, the very deepest needs of our soul. We look to money, we look to careers, family, friends, the next scientific breakthrough or the next sexual encounter. But none of this will satisfy us. None of this can quench our deep desire. It's only Christ. Only through Christ will this desire be satisfied that we most desperately need. So after explaining this living water that he has to offer, notice the woman's response then in verse 15 with a little bit more explanation. She says, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. Okay, she's definitely still confused, still thinking on the physical, temporal level. But notice this is a vastly different response than Nicodemus. Because remember we said these two stories are put closely for a reason so that we can contrast the two. Nicodemus originally came to Jesus with a question. Remember because he had been seeing these signs that Jesus was doing. This woman just comes ordinarily in her day. It's just another day. Just going through her daily duties. Nicodemus, in this conversation, Jesus says something just as wild as, living water will flow from inside of you. He says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus' response, his first response, uh, how can a man enter a second time into his mother's womb? That doesn't make sense to me. 
And then before John has him exiting the conversation, he's, he says, how can these things be? And we don't know exactly what he's intending by this question, but it seems a whole lot like a doubtful statement, a doubtful question, some uncertainty. He's still stuck in his head. But this Samaritan woman, her response, well, this sounds a little weird, but maybe, just maybe, this guy has the thing that's going to satisfy. Maybe what he's offering will satisfy my soul's longing. The divine appointment and the revelation. It's here now in verse 16 that we notice the third movement of our passage right after she says, yeah, I'll take this water. Jesus says to her, go, call your husband. Let's stop here and remind ourselves that the gospel is for everyone. It's not the primary purpose of this statement. To which the woman replies, I have no husband. Jesus knows this. He's not surprised. He knows that the man that this woman woke up to next to that morning was not her husband. He knows her lifestyle. He knows every sinful choice she's ever made. And he knows all of this about you and me. This is vital to our understanding of the gospel. Without the recognition of the magnitude of our sin, it is impossible for us to see the greatness of our Savior. Without the recognition of our sin. But I also think what Jesus is doing here goes beyond just confronting the woman of her sins. What he's doing is he's setting up the conversation for his magnificent reveal. But knowing first, he's got to give a solution, an answer to her biggest question, her biggest dilemma that she faces. In verse 19, the woman confesses after Jesus reads her mail, tells her about her life. She confesses, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. I perceive you are a prophet. Her confession that Jesus is a prophet is a statement of faith. And why, why do I say that? Well, I say that because this statement would have challenged her entire belief system. As we've already noted, the Samaritans only held to the, the Pentateuch, the law, and so they did not believe in any prophets after Moses. They held to the promise in Deuteronomy 18, 18, which Yahweh says, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, like you, Moses, and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Could this man be it? Could he be the great prophet to come? And it is to this answer that the whole story has been leading up to. Because then, then seemingly out of, out of the blue, this woman shifts the conversation to worship, to the place of worship, which might seem odd here, but this is her biggest dilemma. It was the biggest controversy that confronted the Jews and the Samaritans. Where is the rightful place to worship? The Jews believed it to be the temple in Jerusalem, and the Samaritans believed it to be this mountain that was near 
this well where they're at Sychar, this mountain, Mount Gerizim. We might think, oh, that's a random place. It's a random mountain. But if we look back in Deuteronomy 27, we see that this mountain range did have a lot of significance to Israel's history. Israel was commanded to build altars on this mountain and Mount Ebal when they crossed into the promised land. So Jesus here is faced with a very tough theological question. Where in the storyline of redemptive history are we? Were the Samaritans right to disregard the messages of the prophets? And did the place of worship actually move to the temple that Solomon built in Jerusalem? Or should they continue to adhere to the earlier commands that God gave to his people before they entered the promised land? Was there a shift that already happened? And Jesus, as the wise teacher that he is, he's going to answer her question in three ways. He's going to correct her beliefs, render the debate irrelevant, and then instruct her on what is coming. Look in verse 22. He says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. What he's saying here is, Samaritans, you do not have the full revelation of who God is. You stopped after Deuteronomy. You didn't listen to the messages of the prophets. You've done away with the words of the Lord you didn't want to hear, only kept what you wanted. Well, this doesn't sound at all like our culture, does it? Picking and choosing what to believe about God and what to believe about the Bible. May we be cautioned not to neglect his holy word. We must commit ourselves, especially as we are in the sermon series that we are in, we must commit ourselves to his word, to the study of it, not compromising in our faith like our culture is going to coerce us to do, not compromise in our theology just to fit in. All right, notice here, though, Jesus doesn't linger on this point. Yes, he, uh, he corrects her. There is something far greater that is on the horizon. And so he, right here, renders this debate irrelevant. He says twice, verse 21 and 23, in this passage, that an hour is coming when the physical location, this biggest dilemma, it the location isn't going to matter. This isn't even going to be a question anymore. We should revel in the magnitude of this statement that an hour is coming and now is. This is a, a seismic shift that he's proclaiming. It's not pro-Jew. It's not pro-Samaritan. But both forms of their worship are going to become obsolete. So rather than a place, true worshipers, now he'll say, will worship in spirit and truth. This, this description, spirit and truth, seems to, to hinge on this statement, God is spirit. And then if we look ahead, John records in chapter 14, verse 6, this is one of Jesus' I am statements, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
So true worship will be worship in spirit and truth. These are not separate because he's talking about himself. So this is how Jesus can say that an hour is coming and is now here because he is here. The hour that is coming is going to be Christ's death and exaltation. So this new covenant worship that is on the horizon is worship that involves the entire being. No no more outward sacrifices of animals. We didn't do that today, as you saw. But But a heart disposition toward God made only possible by the Son's work on the cross and through the regeneration of life of the believer through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Which he alludes to in the the passage I mentioned earlier, John 7, 37, 38, and 39. So like any good student, after a magnificent answer from the professor, the woman's still a bit confused. And responds, insinuating that this will all be explained to both of them when the Messiah comes. And it's here. It's here at this moment when she says this, that Jesus has been patiently waiting, moving the conversation toward, so that he can reveal himself to her in a way that she's going to understand. And so he says, I who speak to you am this prophet that you're referring to that's me ego amy it is to this woman only that john john the gospel of john our writer here our author records jesus's self-messianic revelation to before his crucifixion it's only to her in his gospel This woman, this non-Jewish, sinful, insignificant, unpopular, unnamed, uneducated, outcast. This is who Jesus chooses to reveal his messianic lordship and his glorious redemptive plan. This woman is the representative that upon Christ's death and resurrection, all people, tribe and tongue will have access to to God. The gospel is going forth now from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth and today it comes to you and to me. Let me wrap this up and note that it was at a well just like, just like this well that Jesus is sitting at here that Moses was at when he met his wife, Zipporah. Or the well that Rebecca went to when she was picked out for Isaac by his servant. And now it is Jesus who sits here at this well and he picks out his new bride. He's picked you and me. What love, what joy, what, a, what sacrifice that he would lay down his life for you and for me so that we could receive the Spirit, so that we could be adopted into his kingdom as sons and daughters of the Lord Most High.
Jesus here breaks down economic, social, gender, political, religious walls to reach the lost. He will break through any obstacle, nothing in this woman's life, nothing in your life, nothing in my life can stop the power of his saving, effectual grace. We must all recognize that our most basic need, our most fundamental inadequacy, is that we cannot save ourselves. It's the same as Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. It's the same need. We all need spiritual rebirth. We need to drink of this living water. Man, woman, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, it's available to all. And this is the good news of the gospel. Well, this story continues, as you know, and this is where we'll stop today, but keep reading because this woman becomes an incredible tool of the Lord as she brings the gospel to her town. These people who have ousted her, who know her sin, that she's a social outcast of this place, she goes to them and brings the gospel and they believe What an example for us. This story that we looked at here today, Jesus reveals one of the most important transitions in redemptive history. And what it means is that you and I can come to know Jesus in a personal way. We can worship him and enjoy eternal life in his presence No one is out of the reach of God's saving grace. We know that no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us from his hands. May we go forth from here in true worship of our Savior and our King. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for providing a way for us to come into communion with you. Thank you for sending your son to die in our place so that we could enter into this relationship that satisfies our deepest and our greatest need. May we never shy away from sharing this wonderful news to all those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.